Some are familiar, some are new. Coming up, an in-depth look at NBAA's top safety focus areas. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. Pete Combs with your trusted source for business aviation news. Every year, the NBAA Safety Committee issues its list of top safety focus areas for business aviation. These are tremendously important issues that directly impact the safety of flight operations across the business aviation spectrum. Joining me to talk about this, from Orlando, Paul Rotte, Aviation Safety Programs Director at USAIG and a long-standing member of the NBAA Safety Committee. Lauren Hanna, Flight Data Analyst at Flight Data Services, as well as a new NBAA Safety Committee member. She's in Castle Pines, Colorado. And Mark Larson, Senior Manager of Safety and Flight Operations at NBAA. He's coming to us from Roseville, California. First, let me turn to Paul. How does a particular issue make it onto the NBAA list of top safety focus areas? Well, it's a combination of factors, uh, Pete. First off, we try to be data-driven so we can look at things that have happened in business aviation mishaps and incidents over the past years uh, and and start there. But that only tells a piece of the story. The way the committee gets beyond that is we get a room full of 50-plus learned experts, practitioners in the, in the uh, fine art of business aviation, and we get their collective wisdom churning on what the body feels is the real root of risk today and moving forward because that's really what we're after. And we think that combination of starting with the data-driven approach and then washing it through a large group of passionate professionals that are actually doing the job today, that gets us to a pretty clear vision of the things that are presenting risks and threats to business aviation today and moving into the near-term future over the next year. And that gives us a backdrop to begin developing a list that's actionable. Let me ask Lauren, we see how items can get on the list. You know, Paul just told us that. But how do items get off the list? That's that's a good question. I think one of the things, um, you know, Paul hit it on the head of the fine art of business aviation. It, it's the best way to put it. We The committee changes itself. I'm one of the newer committee members. So when you get, I guess, more fresh blood in, you see some of the newer topics that are coming up. And before we get to the list, let me just ask Paul one other question about how things work in this list what action is taken as a result of getting them on that list? Well, at the outset, the hope is that this list forms kind of a, uh, a checklist, so to speak, of each individual business aviation operator's safety program and safety focus. It's, it's a list that you can look at as an operator and say, am I covered in each one of these areas? And if not, maybe I need to put a little bit more effort into it. Let's go to the list itself now. And Mark, let me ask you to introduce the first topic, loss of control in flight. Tell me a little bit about why this made the list and has made the list for some time. Loss of control in flight remains on the list as it continues to be the most fatal business aviation accident type. And certainly there's a, you know, a significant frequency to this as well uh, that had our attention in the data. 
the focus that we've had in addressing this, um, in addition to providing a wide range of resources through the NBA website, uh, and then you know, being actively engaged in efforts to address, um, you know, the need for upset prevention and recovery training, um, you know, looking at that really as as a full spectrum, you know, all the way from prevention clear through to uh, recovery techniques uh, as may be necessary. What can we uh, ask our members to do to reduce that risk of loss of control in flight, Lauren? One of the ways they can do it is just asking questions, looking at the data, look for any trending in what's happening, getting more familiar with the aircraft that you're flying, um, hand flying the aircraft every once in a while, looking at what's happening and not letting automation get away from you. I think at the outset, knowledge is king here. So, um, you know, a, a comprehensive review of aerodynamics and the factors of aerodynamics that can lead to loss of control is a huge first step, but some of uh, the uh, you know the training um, experts have proven that that's only a first step. Actually, getting experience, uh, potentially in aircraft experience, to tame the uh, startle reflex and uh, cement some of those basics is a good thing. Uh, and then moving into type-specific training, perhaps performed in the simulators, hopefully performed in simulators for some of these loss of control maneuvers. So there's a continuum. And the point being is wherever you're at on the continuum, start moving up it. Uh, that'll, that'll get you into a safer, more uh, preventatively postured against loss of control. Mark, would you like to introduce the second of our top safety focus areas, which would be runway excursions? Yeah. So the uh, second top safety focus area is to reduce the risk of runway excursions. Um, runway excursions are the most common business aviation accident, and we see these with you know really a regular frequency. There's a number of well-recognized and well-identified risk factors that have come into play in in these runway excursion events, and so you know things like um, you know overcoming the resistance to go around when that's really necessary, adhering to stabilized approach and landing criteria also really critical in these cases. And then using accurate uh, and timely runway condition data um, are really some kind of key pieces to helping prevent uh, these types of accidents. Lauren, tell me if you would about how the TALPA initiative fits into all this. TALPA, of course, is the takeoff and landing procedure assessment, a process designed to greatly reduce overruns in cases when the runway itself isn't dry. So the TALPA initiative um, that kind of hits close to home, my husband's a Southwest pilot, that's kind of what kicked it all off what, 2000, early 2000s? That's right. Um, yeah, so it, it's hard because you, you know, corporate aviation and then looking at, you've got the C-suite in the back or mahogany row or however you like to refer to it, you want to have a smooth landing. You don't want to make your, you know, people that are paying your paycheck angry, but you also need to get them down and safe. So looking at data um, and trying to, to justify both ways, you can kind of see how the TALP initiative it helps teach pilots and teach the flight crews why they should just get it down in the touchdown zone and land the plane. But on the flip side, they don't want to slam it down the runway. So, you know, where do you go with that? And I think that that kind of helps give some answers and, and shares the data and the information that needs to be out there. Paul, one of the things that Mark mentioned a moment ago was a resistance to the idea of going around and trying their approach again. How can we do that? How can we kind of wake ourselves up to that resistance? A lot's been put into streamlining the approach briefings, uh, and people tend to uh, actually fuel strength of an idea uh, with their very uh, curt and focused approach brief that almost 
makes a foregone conclusion that a landing is to follow. Uh, and at the same time, we've made the approach briefings very rote and very specific and very quick to deliver. Uh, we may have missed a little bit in terms of thinking about, well, what if we have to go around and making sure that aspect is covered in the approach briefing. Mark, would you like to introduce our next safety focus area, which would be actually out of the cockpit? And this one is ground operations and handling incidents. Yeah, this is one that uh, when we look at it, we, we've gotten a lot of feedback from the membership uh, through our risk assessment survey that um, we're seeing a lot of ground handling issues, uh, including collisions of aircraft and ground support equipment or vehicles uh, operating on the airport surface. Uh, thankfully, there's a very low number of fatalities uh, with this type of incident, uh, but certainly significant costs associated with repairs time out of service uh, and diminution of value of the aircraft. Uh, as I had kind of earlier said, our risk assessment survey, uh, the responses there indicated um, within the last two years, 47% of respondents had had between one and three uh, ground uh, handling events, and roughly another 10% had four or more events over that same time period. So. Um, Certainly, an issue from our perspective. We we think this is something that, um, with you know, some proper education, engagement, and uh, insight between the the operators and the FBOs and the airports, that uh, we can help effectively reduce this risk uh, to business aviation operations. Paul, let me ask you. This is a company wide issue. We need to all address, no matter what your position is within the company. Sure. I, I think there's so many different causes of this, and that may be contributing to so many people being intimately familiar with them, because uh, certainly it can, a ground handling incident can result from a flight crew oversight or, or something the flight crew uh, did unexpectedly, but it can also come from so many other threat vectors, be it a, a linesman or even somebody that's disassociated with the operation in general. A passenger is allowed to bring a vehicle on the ramp, uh, and there are uh, particular risks and, and, and visual illusions that, that happen when suddenly you're out there on, a, on an aviation ramp driving in a, in a vehicle. So yes, it can come from a number of different uh, threat vectors uh, and uh, everyone should be aware and the defenses to that should cross cut multiple avenues of the workforce. Lauren, do you have any thoughts on how to prevent ground handling incidents? Maybe take your time. Is that one thing that we could we could all learn? I think take your time and just more standardization. I mean, it, it really does. It kind of runs the gauntlet of anything could happen. You could have, you know, kids running off the airplane. You could have somebody trying to park an airplane with the linesman and not realizing if this airplane pushes up the thrust so much, it's going to blow the doors off the hangar behind it. Um, you know, trying to get all of these airplanes, it's it's pretty interesting to watch a tarmac when you are going to an event or an airport like Teterboro or Van Nuys. It's, you know, lots of corporate airplanes or Arapaho, APA, Centennial, you've got lots of corporate aircraft going into one spot. Everybody wants you to come park at their FBO. Everybody wants you to buy their fuel. So they're going to try and squish as many people in as they can. Getting that many people in that one spot, it needs to be a little bit more standardized. They need to make sure they they do the safest practices. But do we all know, Is there are there any safe practices set out there? How do they, how do they control that? Lauren, I think you kind of started to hit a, a great point here too, in the sense that um, there are some places that it's it's a little tighter. We've got you know airplanes that have uh, certainly grown in wingspan uh, and length overall, and that's uh, 
you know, just some of the, the geometry of that um, is becoming unique in some situations. Uh, and I think, you know, further guidance would sort of suggest to flight crews, A, you know, if there's any doubt, um, let's make sure that we've got folks uh, that are walking the wings. So we're not inadvertently running those uh, into uh, other other aircraft uh, parts, you know, fences, that kind of thing, too. G emphasized to our operators is simply be present when your aircraft is being moved. You're another set of eyes, and, and in fact, you're a stakeholder-carrying set of eyes on that airframe. And if you're just letting the uh, you know the linesman of uh, of a third party move and spot your aircraft, and you're going to show up 15 minutes later from the hotel, that's one way to look at it. But it's probably not the best way. You know, it's really hard. Like that's a great in theory be with the airplane, but you know, you park your airplane and all of a sudden the first day it's 70 degrees and next day you're going to have frost and you need to have like a 5 a.m. takeoff. So you need to hang her the plane. Um, and if you can't get back out there, it's such a hard thing. So it, it, I think it really falls back onto the FBOs to have a little bit more training. Um, and like Mark was saying, standardization of, of how aircraft are moved and where they're moved and, and things like that too. Mark, let's talk about our next important safety area, and that would be single pilot operations. We need to improve safety there, correct? Uh, we certainly do. With this one, uh, we're seeing that there is a higher percentage of accidents within business aviation uh, when you're looking at single pilot operations versus those flown by uh, more than one flight crew member. And so that is an area that um, both recognizing that there's a significant uh, community within business aviation that is operating single pilot uh, capable aircraft. We want to make sure that the resources that we're producing from a safety standpoint are addressing that unique cockpit environment versus the two pilot environment and addressing what may be unique risks to that area. One such kind of thing that we've identified with a recent study that we had released at our single pilot safety stand down this past year was that the um, significant number of accidents that came back within the top four were as a result of controlled flight into terrain. And there is work that the General Aviation Joint Steering Group is doing. For the single pilot safety stand down, we're really emphasizing the importance of the type clubs to help the single pilots master those skills that you get in challenging environments. When you usually have somebody else in the cockpit with you, you can look at them and get their feedback. But when you're the only one there, you have to make that decision on your own. And that can be really challenging sometimes. I, th I think one of the factors in the single pilot sphere of operations is that uh, many uh, of the single pilot operators in business aviation don't exercise flying as their primary occupation or responsibility. They're spread a little bit thinner because they do other things. They're, they're uh, you know, some functionary uh, in, a, in a business organization or they have some other specialty, and yet they are also capable of flying, and they also have access to a single pilot aircraft, so they will fly on occasion for business purposes, but at other times, all their talents, all their energies are pulled in another direction. Uh, so I think on balance, some of those type of operators um, have less frequency of uh, ops. Their proficiency is obviously affected by that. They may have less access to high-end training, simulator training in their background. And that, that means they need to exercise a little bit more self-awareness of their limitations. And, and uh, certainly a very complex airspace on a very complex weather day uh, will not be forgiving of any pilot that's up there, dual pilot or single pilot. And if you get yourself into those situations, it's easier to get yourself in over your head if you don't have all all that recency of experience and high-level training standing behind you. Yeah, Paul, spot on there. 
you know, what we also noticed in the data was a significant trend in you know, single pilot risk management issues. And that has been an area that this uh, particular working group of the safety committee has, has addressed with our single pilot risk management resource. And, and there's a flight risk assessment tool that we've also developed uh, specific to single pilot operations that helps address that. And, and the real reality is that there may be a number of circumstances that in order to address that uh, potential risk in flight, it's the kind of thing you've got to address on the ground before you ever took off in the first place. Waiting till you're already airborne and en route uh, may honestly be too late to fully address that um, in a way that's likely to be workable for what you're trying to accomplish. When we're talking about single pilot operations, one of the things that may be first at hand in trying to deal with that is automation and trying to manage that correctly. Um, and let me ask Paul, this, this is sort of an overlap, isn't it, uh, to single pilot operations? Certainly, uh, automation can be a godsend uh, in, in that particular environment when there isn't another person, but at the same time, um, there isn't a second opinion to correct for a misuse or a misunderstanding of the, opera, of the automation on board. So it becomes even more paramount that uh, the single pilot has to know their automation uh, inside and out. You know, Lauren, even when you talk about single pilot operations and the challenges that a single pilot operator faces dealing with automation, that's not at all restricted to single pilot operations. We see that when you have a full cockpit contingent as well. Yes, that's correct. And a lot of times both of them don't even know what's happening. What's the airplane doing? And, you know, we all learn it from basic when you're getting your private pilots, fly the plane. That's the first thing. Fly the plane, work the problem. But when automation's taking over it can be a little bit of a, a mind boggle, right? When the plane's doing something, you think you're doing it right. We're all taught that, you know, the plane knows, knows best, the automation knows best, but what obviously in the recent events, you know, with Ethiopia and Indonesia, it doesn't know best sometimes. And it, when you even got two people in there, or one person or a whole slew of people, it can get a little confusing. You know, when you're looking at a flight management system, especially a new system, one that you haven't worked with, maybe it's uh, in a type of aircraft that you've just gotten rated in, it pays to sort of study that, doesn't it? And I don't think there's a lot of formal training for some of these uh, FMS uh, operations, right? I agree. I believe that there needs to be a lot better training. It may be the same type of aircraft, but it's a whole new ballgame because it's much newer. It's got much more automation. It's doing different things. Mark, what can we say about human-reported and automated safety data, which is another one of our top safety focus areas? With this top safety focus area, we really see an ability to help the industry transition from a reactive you know, post-incident or post-accident analysis of what happened and what went wrong to more of a you know proactive what could go wrong, uh, certainly hand-in-hand -hand with our safety management efforts overall. And, and with that, um, making sure that not only is that information that is available within a given flight organization, but that that information is shared broadly, uh, there's truly a benefit to aggregating all of that data among multiple operators to make sure that we're seeing you know, the bigger picture trends uh, that are occurring, the things that can lead to these accidents and incidents that we've talked about, and um, making sure that maybe we've had an operator that learned the lesson the hard way once. We've all got the ability to benefit from the sharing of everything from you know, narrative safety reports, the things that were identified um, in that manner to uh, also what things like flight operations data or flight data monitoring can tell us through those types of programs and looking at recorded flight data as well. Paul, the uh, importance of sharing data and also the importance of 
analyzing the data that is shared. Well, I'll take it one step even before that question, because we're, we may have just overlooked a, a small but very important word in that top safety focus area, increased use. Uh, the, the word use, and what, we're, what we mean by that is we want the operators individually to use their own data to better understand their own operation. Uh, that's kind of the, uh, the multiplication and division before we get to the algebra uh, kind of step in this. And, and we really felt that there are operators out there that have not unlocked that potential even to fully understand their own operation. So we feel like if you're using the data and you're learning things uh, within your own operation, you'll become even more enfranchised and open to sharing your own data when you see what it can do for you you'll be more encouraged, I guess, to let your data participate in the broader consortium to help the industry at large. So we really think that's the unlocking phase, is to get using your own data. And for some operators, they say it's more evolutionary, very small little things that they've learned about their, their operation that they can use to tweak and move their operation gradually in small steps towards a safer, more efficient operation. But in some occasional operations, it's more revolutionary. They suddenly find like, wow, we had some real uh, gaps in our culture here where we thought one thing, but something else was happening entirely. And the data allowed us to see that and make a, a step increase in our level of, uh, of focus and getting everybody on the same page. So use it first, uh, and that should turn you on to sharing it. Lauren, do you and your organization have a way of internally sharing safety information in this manner? We do. Yeah, that's actually what, what we do. There's the internal sharing, so you can benchmark and look at other, other carriers, but there's also, you know, MITRE's Assize program. I add a slight data exchange, being able to benchmark and look at other things. But like Paul mentioned the use aspect of that, getting people to actually do it. It's got such a, such a bad reputation. People think, oh, it's Big Brother watching me. Oh, I'm going to lose my job. Um, and I think one of the big pushes for the MBAA Safety Committee is to say, no, it's not. It's proactive. Like Mark said, it's, it's your crystal ball. If you could predict an accident or you could predict something going wrong, wouldn't you want to? Wouldn't you want to use that data and do it in a just culture? Get your pilots to buy in. Show them the better aspects of it, the good things about data, evidence-based training, all the different wonderful things they can get from the data and not the fact that you're going to lose your job or it's Big Brother watching you. It's, it's a good thing and not a bad thing. The last item, but certainly not the least, on our list of top safety focus areas from the NBAA Safety Committee, controlled flight into terrain. Paul, let's start with you. Controlled flight into terrain kind of left the list for a while and and now it came back on and people wondered hey is there some uh, you know cosmic message going on there and and the reality of it is it, it's continuing to show up in mishaps and business aviation encompasses a lot of different types of operations and the and and the quick to altitude uh, long-range flyers that uh, just uh, make their descent into their expected airport that is not necessarily the type of operation that's exposed to a high level of risk for, for CFIT, controlled flight into terrain. But there's many business aviation operations, tours, um, aeromedical operations, those types of things that are operating much lower, much closer to terrain. And we're finding that those mishaps are still occurring. So I think just on the 
the frequency of occurrence continuing to be there and cross-cutting into the automation theme because automation can be behind some of these things, either through its use or its non-use, even when it's installed. Uh, we know we have some great automation features that assist uh, as defenses to control flight into the train, but if it's not understood, not used it properly or used at all, those threats and risks come right back into the picture. Mark, let me ask you on that particular topic. I'm seeing that controlled flight into terrain occurs in more than 15% of all GA accidents and fatalities. We have the technology to avoid these sorts of accidents. Why do they still constitute such a large percentage of overall accidents and incidents? Well, certainly there's a significant number of aircraft that are equipped with things like terrain awareness and warning systems that can be that uh, line of defense, as, as Paul's really talked about. With this, I think one of the things that we saw in at least one recent example was that the warnings were essentially disabled based on the, the flying that they were doing. Certainly, if you have it on board, we would encourage operators to be sure that they're using it to its full intended effect. With that, for operators that may not have it, you know, certainly be looking to that as a potential line of defense to help against this particular threat, too. Let me ask one last question of Lauren, and that is, not too long ago, FAA started talking about a very close call in California where a commercial aircraft got within a few hundred feet of a mountain there in rising terrain coming out of, I believe it was Los Angeles. This pilot was vectored in that area. That could happen to anyone. Everybody's human. When you run into a situation like that, where you're being vectored, especially in areas where you have rising terrain, does it not pay to look at your chart and, and be very aware, even if you're being vectored? It, it does pay. But if we think about when you're, you know, you're saturated with task, if it's a task saturation at that point, and when you're getting vectored, yeah, it's a whole different ballgame, right? That's, that's where your CRM comes in. And that's where if you're by yourself in the single pilot situation, you've got a lot going on as one person, let alone if you had another person there to help. That's Lauren Hanna, one of the newest members of the NBAA Safety Committee, speaking from Castle Pines, Colorado. You also heard from longtime Safety Committee member Paul Rate, Aviation Safety Program Director for USAIG based near Orlando, and NBAA Senior Manager of Safety and Flight Operations, Mark Larson, who spoke to us from Roseville, California. You know, there's a tremendous amount of safety information on the website. You'll find it at nbaa.org slash safety. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan podcasts at Apple's iTunes website, your favorite podcast website, or download them from nbaa.org. I'm Pete Combs. Thanks for listening to Flight Plan. <laughs>